When I was a kid, I definitely didn't like it when I wasn't given a reason why for something. My parents would tell me to do something or they'd tell me not to do something. And, you know, the question I would always ask is, why? And they gave me a response that maybe you give to your kids. Uh, Their response was, because I say so. I didn't like that response. How many of you parents here just use that response? You know, growing up as a kid, I hated that response, and now I'm a parent, and I'm using that response, so, you know, shame on me. But um, when my parents responded, because I say so, I would usually ask that question again. Well, why do you say so? Why is it that it has to be done? And usually they wouldn't give me the reason why. They would often just respond with saying, because I'm the boss. Now, usually I would just kind of stop right there, but sometimes, you know, I felt like a little more daring or maybe a little more (laughs) foolish, but then I would say, well, why are you the boss? Uh, And I never got an answer to that question. Then it was just discipline uh, right after that. But uh, as I've gotten older, I still don't like it when I don't know the reason for why. You know, I want to know why someone does something, why something works the way it does, why or, uh, I should or shouldn't do a certain thing. And uh, anyone else here like to know the reason why, or are you just kind of content, just, ah, it's okay, I don't need to know. And personally, you know, that's something that I really like. And because I like to understand why, I love Easter. Now, you might be thinking, what does that have to do with Easter? What does the fact that you love to know the reason why have anything to do with the Easter account? Well, I'm going to tell you, because I say so. (laughs) Just kidding. See, I could use that. You know, see how annoying that is? You know, as parents, well, I'm going to try to stop. Let's see. (laughs) Give a little more reason. You know, the reason it has to do with Easter is because the biblical account of Easter gives the reason why to so many important things about God. If we don't have the Easter account, we're left with these questions of why when it comes to God, when it comes to some of the most significant things about God, the Easter account answers those questions for us. And that's why I love Easter. I love this for many reasons, but it's one of those reasons because it ties together some of the most important questions that you ask as you encounter the scriptures. You know, Christmas is the other main holiday as Christians that we celebrate and, you know, most people, if you ask them what Christmas is all about, you know, they would talk about, you know, baby Jesus, but it's more than just a celebration of the birth of Jesus. It's the incarnation of Christ. When I speak of the incarnation, I'm referring to God becoming one of us. Uh, It's an amazing, miraculous thing. It's something that is Christmas time, you know, we'll get into more, but God becoming one of us, born as a child, becoming man, and it's just a, a great thing to comprehend, but You know, the incarnation of Jesus brings up a huge question, why? You hear about the baby being born, you hear about God becoming a man, and the question then becomes, well, why? Why did God choose to become one of us? Why did God choose to become a baby? Why did God leave his throne in heaven and come down here and dwell on earth with us? Well, the answer to that question is revealed in the Easter account of Scripture. The very important question of why did God come? Why did God choose to do this? What was his purpose? It's all revealed as we come to the end. As we come to the end of Jesus' life. As we come to the Easter account, we're revealed the answer why. And this is one of the reasons I love to celebrate Easter. And and this is why I'm excited this morning to reveal this truth. Why did God come? Why do we celebrate Christmas and focus on that? Why is that so significant? Why is it important? Why did he come? What was his purpose? 
But we're going to be looking at that this morning. Now, as many of you know, the Easter account starts with Jesus' death. So one of the main reasons why Jesus chose to be born, why he came as a baby, why he came to this earth, was ultimately to die. Now, you may be thinking that that's kind of an odd purpose. So, so God became one of us just to die? Well, it's a good question that we're going to focus on. Jesus died on a Friday, and we referred to it, you probably thought of this, maybe heard of this just a couple of days ago, we referred to it as Good Friday. You know, growing up, I always thought that was a very odd thing to say. Why do we look back on the day Jesus died and call it good? Why is that day good? Why would we associate goodness to the death of Christ? Now, I'm sure most of you here have a loved one, someone that you were close to that died. I remember my grandmother very vividly the day that I was told that she died. Uh, We were very close. She lived with us for most of my life. She died when I was 13. I remember the day. It was a Wednesday. I got home from school. My parents are there. They're crying. I knew, you know, she had cancer. I I figured, you know, the worst had happened. And, you know, on that day, they told me that she had passed away. Uh, And, you know, I don't look back on that day and refer to it as Good Wednesday. I don't look back on that day and think of it as something good. It was bad. It was a horrible day. It was a day full of sadness and grief because someone that I love so dearly passed away. And so it's interesting that we, as Christians, we, we look back on this day that Jesus died and we call it Good Friday. Well, what was good about Jesus' death? Well, in order to answer that question what is good about Jesus' death, we first need to understand some important things about ourselves. We need to understand two answers about what the Bible reveals about you and I. The first thing that we need to understand about ourselves is told to us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Throughout the Bible, it makes very clear that every one of us is a sinner. It doesn't say some have sinned. It doesn't say most have sinned. It tells us all, every single person, every person on this planet has sinned. You know, most people see themselves as a good person. If you would go and ask someone that, if probably someone asked you that, you would respond with, you know, I'm a good person, and I'm sure that everyone who's ever lived has done good things. And some have probably done way more than others. But the reality that you've done good things doesn't change the fact that you still have sinned, that each one of us are still guilty of sin, that each one of us, the Bible is very clear, is a sinner. Now, I'm sure that you've heard that term sin. I'm sure that you've been told that before. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a sinner? What does it mean in the Bible when it speaks about sin? Well, it's actually a very interesting term that the Bible, as we see that word sin in the Bible, it means to miss the mark. Ultimately, speaking of to miss the mark of God's perfect standard. Now, this Greek word that's translated sin was actually an archery term. See, in archery, you have the perfect standard, which is the bullseye. And if you were to miss the mark, then you miss the bullseye. You haven't attained what you were attaining, uh, meant to attain, and so you wouldn't have won uh, the archery event. Well, God is the one who has established what the mark is. He's the one who determines what the standard is 
that you and I are supposed to live by. God is perfect. And the standard that He has placed before us is perfection. He is the one who's revealed, here is my standard. It is a perfect standard. And anything that does not meet that perfect standard, anything that doesn't meet that perfect standard, misses the mark. Misses the mark of what God has established. Now I could list off a bunch of sins like murder and covetousness and adultery and lying and cheating and and we could go on and on and and those are all definitely missing the, the perfect standard of God but ultimately it's not just those big sins that we think of, it's anything that misses that perfect standard is considered to be a sin. And the problem that the Bible reveals is that all of us have failed to attain that level of perfection. All of us have failed to meet that perfect standard that God has established. And that's why in Romans 3.23 we're told, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of that perfect standard that He has placed before us. Now it's important to understand that, first of all, God is the one who has established the standard, but also He is the one that we have to measure up to. Because we have a tendency, I know growing up, this was my tendency, I'm sure you could relate to this as well. We have a tendency to focus more on how we measure up with others as opposed to how we measure up with God's perfect standard. You see, God's perfect standard no one can attain, but yet we can attain a higher standard than other people. And so we look at our life and we say, well, they sin more than me. You know, they have not got anywhere close to the perfect standard, but look at me, I'm here and they're down there. And so I'm doing okay. The reality is you can always find someone who sins more than you. There's only going to be one person in the world who looks around and is like, all right, I'm the worst sinner of all. But, you know, it's easy for us to look and be like, well, I'm better than this guy or I'm better than that person. And so we kind of convince ourselves, well, I'm okay. Or we kind of listen to the world's philosophies and ideas about what the standard of sin is, and and that standard continues to drop, and so we think, well, I hold to a higher standard than they do, and so I should be good with God. Well, that is something that is very dangerous, something that many people fall into, and they miss the reality that the standard is set by God, and that is a standard that He holds us to. And so if your standard is, well, I do better than others, or your standard is what the world says, then you have a problem. The Bible says none of us have obtained the standard that God has established, and don't convince yourself otherwise. The reality is we've all sinned. We're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you've done a little better None of us have obtained perfection. None of us have reached that standard. We're all in the same boat of we're sinners before a perfect God. And something we need to understand is we're not judged by how we measure up to others. We're judged by how we measure up to that perfect standard of God. So that's the first thing we need to understand about ourselves. The Bible is very clear. All of us are sinners. All of us have not met that perfect standard that God established for us. The second thing we need to understand is what our sin has done to us. Okay, we recognize we're all sinners. We've all done things that are wrong. But what does that do? What's the big deal? I mean, you know, okay, I have some sin, but, you know, what does that bring to my life? In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that you earn. As you have a job, they give you a wage, you've earned it, you've worked, you get what you earn. Well, the Bible is here telling us the wage of our sin, what our sin has earned us, is death. And this is really ultimately speaking about a spiritual death. 
There's an ultimate consequence to our sin, which the Bible refers to as hell, a place where we are separated eternally from God because He is sinless and cannot allow sin into His presence, and our sin ultimately brings this eternal death. This is something that we need to understand about God, that He is perfect. He's holy. He's sinless. And because of that, He cannot allow sin into His presence. And because of that, our sin has separated us from God. Now, the Bible also tells us something else about God, that He is a just judge. And because He's a just judge, He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. Our sin must be paid for. God must judge our sin because He's just. Now, this is very interesting to me because so often I hear people make statements and before I really accepted God, I had this kind of mindset as well. It's, you know, God's a God of love. We hear that so often. God's a God of love. And since he's a God of love, surely when I stand before him on judgment day, he's going to let me into heaven regardless of what I've done because he's a God of love. I mean, surely what kind of God of love wouldn't accept me? You know, I know I've done some things wrong, but yet he's so loving, so he's just going to just let that slide. Well, if all God was was a God of love, then that would be an okay argument. The problem that these people don't recognize is that God is much more than just love. We're going to see how his love interacts with the other things that he is, but God is also perfect holy, righteous, and because of that, he cannot allow sin into his presence. As he's standing there and you say, well, you're a God of love, let me in as a sinner. And he says, I can't, because I am holy, and I cannot allow that sin in my presence. Another thing that God is, is he is a just judge. And he says, because I'm a just judge, I have to deal with your sin. I can't just say, come on in, I'm loving, and not deal with your sin, and not deal with what you've done. Because God's not just the God of love, he's so many more things. Let me give you an example that maybe will help you understand this a little better. If someone broke into your house and your loved one was there and they met them and they encountered them and they stabbed them to death, they were caught, they pled guilty, they they stood before a judge and they said to the judge, I know I'm guilty of murder, but you know, you're a loving judge. If you let me off, if if I don't have any consequence to this crime that I've committed, you know what, I'm going to be good for the rest of my life. I'm going to dedicate my life to helping people live longer since I took this life from this earth. You know, if you are a loving judge, just, just let me go. Don't punish me for this. Now you, as the loved one of that person who was stabbed to death, would you feel that it was just if that judge were to say, okay, yeah, go ahead. You're set free, you know, there's no punishment, nothing's going to happen, even though you've broken the law, even though you've taken a life, you know. I don't think any of us would say, yeah, that was justice being served. And see, the reality is God is perfectly just, and he's a judge. And so when we come before him and we use that excuse of, well, you're loving, he says, yes, I am, but I'm also just. And I can't allow that sin that you've done to go unpunished. And God is holy. Because of that, He cannot allow sin into His presence. And so we're faced with quite a big problem. Hopefully this picture will give you a little better understanding of the problem that each and one of us face. The first problem that we already looked at is that we're sinners. And our sin has done two horrible things to us. First, it has separated us from God. Because He's holy, He cannot allow sin into His presence, and so our sin has given us that separation. But also... Our sin has brought God's judgment upon us. 
the judgment that the Bible speaks of, which is hell. A place of eternal punishment and separation from God. Now that is the bad news. The bad news that we have to come to grasp about ourselves. We're all sinners, and that sin has brought two horrible things to us. Separation from God and God's judgment upon us. And those are the two things we have to understand before we can understand the answer to the question, what was good about Jesus' death? Because if I just go into, oh, let me tell you what was good about Jesus' death without having a recognition that I'm a sinner, without having the recognition that my sin has separated me from God, without having a recognition that God must judge my sin, I'm not going to understand what was good about Good Friday, good about Jesus' death. So we need to start with that premise. You know, God is a God of love. He loves every person in this world. He knew that our sin has separated us from Him. Our sin has caused Him to judge us. But since He loves us so much, He came up with a plan. A plan to be able to redeem us of our sin, to pay for our sin, because He recognized our sin keeps us from Him. Our sin must be judged. And so He says, you know what? I'm going to come up with a way to deal with the sin in your life. He loves us so much that His plan was to come Himself, to give His life, to take our sin upon Himself. And he could do it now without denying his justice, without denying his holiness, without denying his perfection. He was able to come up with a plan to be able to keep who he is intact and still demonstrate his love towards us, who he loves so much. And that is when he did, when he sent Jesus as a baby to be born in Bethlehem, to become one of us. But not only did Jesus become one of us, He lived a sinless life. He kept that perfect standard. He was the only one to keep that perfect standard that none of us have ever been able to keep. And He did that so that He could pay for our sin. After living that sinless life, Jesus did the most important thing of all. He took our sin upon Himself. He took the judgment of our sin upon Himself as He went to the cross and gave His life for you and for me so that we could escape the judgment that we deserve. Well, you say, well, when did Jesus do this? When did this happen? Well, there are two important scriptures to think about. First is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. When did Jesus do this? When did He take our sin upon Himself? When did He take the judgment? He did it when He died on the cross. I think something important to understand is the reason Jesus was nailed on the cross, the reason that Jesus was killed wasn't because the Romans forced him to do it. It wasn't because the religious leaders wanted it to happen. Jesus could have stopped them from crucifying him at any point in time that he decided. In John chapter 10, verse 18, notice what Jesus says. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. You know, sometimes we see Jesus as this helpless person that, you know, oh, he couldn't stop them. You know, they just took over and they nailed him, and oh, how sad that he was just helpless in that situation. He wasn't helpless at all. If he wanted to, he could have struck all them dead. If he wanted to, he could have stopped them at any point in time. If he wanted to, he could have called a legion of angels to protect him. He wasn't helpless. He chose to go to that cross. He chose to be crucified. He chose to allow those people to nail him there. 
And the reason Jesus did that is because He loves us. God demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it wasn't nails ultimately that held Jesus to the cross. It was His love for you and me. His love for you and me is what kept Him there. His love for you and me is what enabled Him, what drove Him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He prays to the Father, if there's any other way to redeem mankind, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. He recognizes this is the only way, and I'm going to do it because I love the world. I love the people I'm giving my life for. You see, the problem is that we're sinners, which separates us from God and brings the judgment of God upon us because He's a just judge. But God had a remedy, a way to save us from our sins and the judgment that it brings. And the remedy is the cross. The remedy is Jesus' death for our sins. And as you can see from this picture, the cross of Jesus ultimately bridged that gap of separation. We are separated from God because of our sin, but Jesus paid for our sin so that we can now have relationship with God again. That judgment that was upon us because of our sin has now been dealt with at the cross, and we no longer have to go to hell. We can now go to heaven. We can now be with God because of what Christ has done on the cross for our sin. So our problem is that we're sinners, which separates us from God and brings the judgment of God upon us because He's a just judge, but God had the remedy. I love you so much that I am going to send my only son to deal with your sin so that you can be forgiven. This is why we as Christians refer to Jesus' death as good. This is why we look at Friday, the day he died, and call it Good Friday. It's not that we're kind of morbid. It's that we're looking back and we're recognizing what he did for our sin. And we look back and we recognize how good it is for us. He went through all that suffering. He went through all that, but it was so good for us because He dealt with our sin. He enabled us now to be able to be forgiven, to have that relationship with God that we couldn't have before that. What Jesus did for our sin is a free gift. God offers it to anyone who desires to have it. But something we need to understand is God doesn't force us to receive it. He says, here, I've done this for you. You have sin, it separated me. You have sin, I have to judge it. You can accept what I've done for you. You can accept that Jesus has died for that, and therefore I will place the judgment that I did on him and not on you. Or you can choose to be judged yourself. It's up to you. You can reject the free gift. You can reject what Jesus has done. And therefore, when you stand before me on judgment day, I will have to judge your sin because I'm just and I'm holy. And if you accept what Jesus has done, when you stand before me on judgment day, you will be able to say, I have accepted Christ and what He has done, and so therefore you can accept me because you poured my sin upon Him. You poured my judgment upon Him. But it's your choice. God gives it freely to you. You can choose what Jesus has done, or you can reject it. But understand that one day you will die. One day you will stand before Him. And on that day, you're either going to stand by yourself and say, I have to take the judgment of my sin, or you're going to stand with Christ and say, He paid for it. I believed in Him, and therefore I'm going to be able to be accepted Because of it. The most famous and most quoted verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you so much that He freely gave His Son 
to die on the cross for your sin. And he did it so that you wouldn't perish in hell, but that you could have eternal life with him in heaven. But notice in order for this to happen, it says you must believe in Jesus. You must believe in what he did for you. You have to make that choice. Now you might be thinking, how can I be confident that Jesus is who he claimed to be? How can I be confident that Jesus truly was God? How can I be confident that he has the power to save me from my sins? Well, that's another reason I love Easter. Because death is just the start of the story. Three days after Jesus died, we have the greatest miracle, the most important and significant event in all of history. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and He conquered sin. He conquered death. And, and there are, these are the two main reasons why resurrection is so important. The first reason resurrection is so important because it proves that Jesus is who He claimed to be, God. Romans 1.4 said, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus claiming I'm God, claiming I can forgive your sins, claiming all those things didn't prove that He was God. What proved it is that He was able to rise from the dead. What proved it is He could do that. That's what is our proof. That is where we stand back and know we can be confident that Jesus did this. The second reason why the resurrection is so important is because it proves that Jesus conquered another enemy of ours, which is death. Romans 6, 9 and 10 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered Not only sin, but he conquered death. Every one of us is going to die. No one is going to escape that. And, you know, something worse than physical death is eternal death. An eternal separation from God. But since Jesus conquered death by his resurrection, we can be confident that if we place our faith in him, that we too can conquer that death, that separation. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you might die physically, but you will not die spiritually. You will not go and have an eternal separation from me in hell. Do you believe this? That's a a very vital question that he poses. Do you believe I've done this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? The question that we have to answer for ourselves. You know, Jesus says something else very important about himself. In John 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus says here is so important to understand. He says, I am the way, the only way to the Father. I am the truth. I am the life. The only way to eternal life. Now, we live in a world where, oh, there's so many paths to God. There's so many paths to heaven. There's so many paths to eternity. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. And that's definitely not what Jesus said. He says, there's one way. And it's through me. I am the only way to God. It is through accepting what I have done for your sin on the cross that you will be saved. There's no other path. There's no other way. It's not your good works. It's not believing in this or that. It's only when you place your faith in me that you can have eternal life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, if you want to escape the punishment of your sins, there's only one way for that to happen, and that is to place your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us how we do that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you want to be saved of your sins, if you want to have a relationship with God, He says all you need to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that He died on the cross, believe in your heart that He raised from the dead, ask Him to forgive you of your sins, and the Bible says you'll be saved. There's a promise, a wonderful promise. Not only will you be saved of your sin, you'll be given that opportunity now to have the relationship with God, not only in this life, but for all eternity in heaven. You see, the Easter account answers this very important question. Why did Jesus choose to come and be one of us? Why did he choose to leave his throne in heaven and dwell as a man on earth? He did it ultimately to live a sinless life, to die for our sins, to take the judgment that we deserve because God loves you so much. He wants a relationship with you and he made it possible for that relationship to happen. But he says the only way it will happen, he's done everything on his end. Now he just says, you just have to accept it. Here's the free gift. You have to believe it. It's your choice now. I leave it with you. You can reject it if you want to. You can choose not to accept it. You can choose not to believe in me. But one day you will stand before him. The Bible says every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. In Revelation 21, we have a standing before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. And he is going to judge us. But those who have accepted Him, we're told that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And all that we've done, we're not going to be judged for. It's going to be dealt with at the cross. And then we're going to be allowed into heaven. But everyone else, books are going to be open. And everything that you've ever done, any sin that you've ever done, when you have not reached that perfect standard of God, is going to be placed there before you. And He is going to judge you for each one of those things. And the judgment ultimately will be hell. This is why Easter is so important to us as Christians because we take time to celebrate the fact that God did what was necessary to keep us from having to be judged for our sins. He took it for us. He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And it's a wonderful celebration, something that is so dear to those of us who have accepted its heart. And it's an opportunity for those who have not. Let's just take a moment just to be quiet before the Lord. Uh, I just want to, you can just thank Him, but just really ponder what He's done for us. And we'll just take some time, just close your eyes uh, and just get quiet before the Lord.